Well, it's good to see you this morning, church. Good morning to you. Our sermon title, uh, we've actually got two different titles. The the right one is the one in the little insert, uh, and that is Dreams, Disasters, and Discernment. So, um, yeah, nothing heavy, right? Dreams, Disasters, and Discernment. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at uh, this text that our brother and elder Barry just read to us. So here's the question. Does God speak to people in dreams? Well, maybe you've heard stories of God speaking to Muslims in dreams about Christ. And, and you know, what are we to think about that? Uh, or maybe you've known people who were often trying to make decisions, like important life decisions, based on dreams. And, and to you, that seemed a little bit uh, dodgy, a little bit unstable, right? Uh, you know, trying to read the tea leaves before making a decision, um, it kind of, you know, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. Um, what do you think? So, so maybe you're concerned about getting sidetracked from Scripture, and it just seems safer to say that, that dreams, th- those are simply the brain uh, processing during the REM cycle of sleep. Um, we shouldn't pay any attention to. Well, so far in the last month, as we've gone through this, this story of, of the life of Joseph, we've seen God speak to Joseph in two dreams. We've seen God send the royal cupbearer and the baker a pair of prophetic dreams that were to be interpreted to them by Joseph in jail. And then now we see God sovereignly warn Pharaoh about a future famine in two vivid dreams that he sent him that got his attention. So let's look at that a little bit uh, more in depth, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to loop back briefly uh, and talk about dreams in our own lives. Um, and then let's move on to disasters and the importance of discernment that we see in this, in this text. So the first 28 verses that, that Elderberry read were all about this, this fantastic dream that Pharaoh had, these two dreams, and, and their interpretation. So let me invite you to look back at verse 1 through 8. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Well, that's not, that's not really too surprising so far. Uh, in a hot place like Egypt, if you're a cow, there's flies, there's heat. Uh, the, the, the Nile's a great place to, to, to kind of hang out, right? And and so, but then, behold, it says, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Now, this was not a pretty dream, okay? Uh, Cannibalistic cows. Um, This got Pharaoh's attention, this dream. But then then he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing in one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure what that looked like. Okay, I've tried to visualize it, and I can't. I mean, how 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 do... how does grain eat each other? I can imagine it with the cows. I'm not going to try to just explain what that looks like to you in my mind's eye. 
But the grain, I don't get what that looked like. But somehow that's what Pharaoh saw in his dream. Have you ever had a crazy dream before? And, and crazy things happen, and, and later you're trying to think, how, how, how exactly did that work out? Right? But clearly this was a repeat of the theme of the first dream. And so Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his, his spirit was troubled, and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now it's important to remember here, a little background history, that pharaohs were considered to be divine, and they lived, as one writer put it, quote, on the edge of the divine realms, people thought. So their dreams were given great weight. And Pharaoh, we read here, he consulted his magicians to try to figure out what do these dreams mean? Now, now these magicians weren't what we might think of magicians today who can stand up here and do all kinds of sleight of hand kind of acts, you know. These were actually uh, what we might call cultic dream interpreters, okay? These were people who, who studied the cult, uh, likely were indeed influenced by demons, probably had shown some kinds of power, actually, uh, and would have been considered experts of the day with their dream books of, of being able to interpret dreams. But interestingly here, for these pair, this pair of dreams, they did not know the clear meaning. And, and you get the sense that even if they had an idea that, uh, you know, seven um, scrawny evil cows eating seven good plump cows and the same thing with grain, that can't be a good thing. All right. I mean, I don't think you have to be brilliant to get the idea that this isn't necessarily a, a positive omen, okay? Um, uh, there's this idea here that nobody really wanted to share their opinion on this one, all right? Um, Pharaoh was not a happy camper here, and, and he's distressed that no one can help him, no one can interpret this dream that he recognizes uh, is, is a mark of trouble, some kind of trouble. But, but suddenly, the royal cupbearer, after two years of amnesia, remembers Joseph, right? And suddenly he remembers a promise he made Joseph to remember him when Joseph had interpreted his dream and said, you're going to be restored in three days. And so we read in verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit where he had spent years, right? And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, and I'm hoping got some kind of a shower, um, we don't know, he came in before Pharaoh. So let's just think for a moment about, about Joseph's 
uh, rise here from the depths, from the pit, okay? Uh, Chris reminded us of the whole sine wave. I noticed you said sound wave, you know, the musician. Um, but yeah, whether it was, you know, I mean, maybe you're thinking a roller coaster, but jo- I mean, Joseph here now, he is, he is taking one big dive when he was dis- uh, betrayed by his brothers. And then, you know, after years in captivity, he is running a powerful household. You know, he's like the chief steward. And then, and then he's betrayed and, 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 and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in the pit, thrown in this, this prison where he ends up kind of running the show, but he's still a, a prisoner for years. He calls it the pit. And then suddenly now, it's almost like you're on the one of those roller coasters like this, but now it's like, like a rocket ship just shooting up. I mean, he goes from years in the pit to a shower, maybe uh, a shave. We know it says new clean pair of clothes and he's standing before the most powerful man in the world at the time. And, and so, and yet the Hebrew reader understood that Yahweh God here is standing right beside or right behind Joseph. That's the picture here. All right. Joseph stands before Pharaoh and yet the Lord God is right behind Joseph. And he has been sovereignly working through each step of Joseph's life through these years of ups and downs to bring him to this very moment. And this is his moment. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, you know, in that moment, there were probably two temptations. The the first one for Joseph would have been to simply cower before Joseph's power, or sorry, uh, Pharaoh's power, right? I mean, I've heard stories, and in fact, I read in, in in, in a commentary who kind of kind of pricked my mind to, to think about this, where, where people who have met the president of the United States, right? And, and this has kind of happened to them. And in fact, there may have been people who thought, you know, who didn't like the president, who didn't like his policies, who, 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 who you know, who told their wives, today I'm going to go give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to give him what for. They walk in the Oval Office and, and they suddenly just kind of cower because of the power that that office represents. So it would have been, it would have been tempting for Joseph to cower before Pharaoh's power, or, or as an opportunist to seek promotion for self, maybe to give himself a little bit of credit for this power that he has, maybe negotiate a little bit, make a case for being liberated, right? Well, well Joseph didn't either here. He, he didn't cower, and, and, and he didn't Um, exploit or self-promote here. He wasn't an opportunist. Instead, he simply gave glory to God. All credit he gave to God. He said, it is not in me that this power you seek, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so he he told the disconcerted and disshelved Pharaoh that Ha Elohim, that is the God, as opposed to Egypt's many gods, of whom Pharaoh and, and others considered himself to be part, a part, he said that Ha Elohim, the God, would give him the interpretation. 
And so Joseph makes it very clear that it's not his own magical powers of discernment. The power is God's, and so he is the one who received all the glory. And so Pharaoh now shares the dream in verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them. And now Pharaoh adds a little bit here, okay, that that we don't see in the original narrative. Um, Pharaoh gives a little more description here, what he saw. Poor and very ugly and thin, such as I've never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And so, Pharaoh seems to to have just this picture in his mind of of the ugliness of these these skinny cows that ate the fat cows, and and you'd never see a difference, all right? Uh, In fact, the, the Hebrew word here to describe those cows is ra, which could be translated evil. And so he says, then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the good seven ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So, so here again, we have this picture of one man, Joseph, triumphing over the magicians of Pharaoh's court. And try to look at it from the Egyptian perspective. Here you have a a young, 30-year-old foreign slave who's just been brought up out of a dungeon, out out of a pit. And now he has Pharaoh spilling his guts to him. And so again, What an opportunity for Joseph. But notice how God-centered Joseph's interpretation is, okay, As, as, as we read these words. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. You see, here's how it works. The reason that Joseph can interpret the meaning of these dreams of what will happen is God has a plan. He is sovereign here, and he is going to do what he will do. And so he has revealed to Joseph the meaning of these dreams, but it is the Lord who will actually make these things happen. All right? And so Joseph has that confidence here. So he says, the good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And so we see here, even as Joseph kind of unlocks the mystery of interpretation and says, you know, these are what these elements of your dream means, What we see here is that Yahweh God is king. Pharaoh thinks he's king. Yahweh is the one who holds Pharaoh and Egypt's future in his hands. And that's what Joseph is saying in a very respectful and winsome way. And according to Joseph, 
God was speaking to Pharaoh through these two dreams that had one interpretation in his kindness, telling, telling Pharaoh what he is going to do in the future. So let's go back to the question. Does God and has God used dreams to communicate to people to help guide them? Well, the answer is yes, of course. Not only in Joseph's sphere, but frankly, over thousands of years of history. If you remember, uh, God spoke to his father Jacob in a dream. Remember this dream of Jacob's ladder, right, where angels were ascending and descending? God has not only spoken to his people in dreams, but also to his enemies. So you think about the Midianite and Amalekite armies in the day of Gideon. If you go back and read the story, you'll see that God actually gave those wicked military men dreams about their coming defeat, which, which actually helped embolden Gideon and helped weaken them in the knees. God gave dreams and revealed himself through a dream to Solomon, as well as to the proud king Nebuchadnezzar, as well as to Daniel. God gave Daniel interpretation of, of dreams, but also gave him dreams himself in which he revealed a lot of prophecy. Centuries later, like hundreds of years later, God spoke very clearly to another Joseph in a dream, and that would be the adopted father of Jesus. If you remember in Matthew chapter 1, we, we read this during the Advent season, the, the whole story of, of God speaking through an angel to the Virgin Mary, but then God spoke in a dream to her fiancé, Joseph. So we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, not, in, not while he was awake, but in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, was there some important information there? Absolutely. And God chose the medium of a dream to share this with Joseph. And so we read that when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And we read later in the next chapter that they were warned, both Mary and Joseph, it says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way in Matthew 2, 12. Actually, that was, that was a, uh, a dream to the wise men in Matthew 2, 12. And so how should we view dreams then today? In, in our own lives. Well, I hope you will view dreams with great discernment. The Lord has given us something much greater and much more clear than dreams. He's given us a book with, that, that have, that, that have this really a compilation of a whole lot of revelation to a whole lot of people that he has given to us, which is his divine self-disclosure as well as an instruction manual for how to live life. But the most important thing in this book is the story of redemption. There's a lot of stories in this book, 
um, written from different vantage points, different authors on different continents, different countries, different historical perspectives, but all with one great arc, and that is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that, that God made us, right, in his image, and yet we rebelled against him. But he didn't just leave us in, 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 our, in our destruction and in, in coming in, in, in our death, right? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, all of the prophets, all of these stories point to him, including the story of Joseph, in many ways points to the story of a coming savior, Jesus, right? And so Jesus had a mission, and, and Jesus lived on this earth for about 33 years and, and made disciples and taught about the kingdom of God and revealed much of God to people, the heart of God to people. But his mission was to die on a cruel Roman cross for our sins in our place so that a holy God could accept us sinners. But that only comes through faith, by trusting in him, right? And, and be give, being given new life. That's the, that's the story of the Bible. By believing that Christ died and rose from the dead. That's the, that's the awesome story of the gospel of the Bible. And he's given to that, that to us. And so you don't have to have a dream to understand that truth, okay? In fact, I would encourage you, uh, everything that you ever think you receive in any kind of a dream or a word from anybody, test that with Scripture. But would, would God ever use a dream today? in someone's life. Well, let me tell you, God can do whatever he wants to do. Okay, he's a big God, way too big to fit in any of our boxes. But I will tell you this, he will never contradict the revelation of his word. Okay, and, and, and we can dream all kinds of crazy things. Okay, um, I mean, we're talk, there's a whole lot of subjectivity. So I would encourage you I would encourage you not to run around thinking you have to, you have to understand the meaning of a dream before you make a life decision. Okay, what you need to do is look into the Word of God and say, what does the Bible have to say? Because the Bible may tell you, no, if you're thinking about marrying a dude who doesn't love the Lord, the Bible says don't do it, all right? You're thinking about an occupation that would require uh, some kind of immorality on your part, the Bible says don't do that. There's, there's, there's all kinds of life clarity here in the Word of God. But it may then come to, all right, um, you know, here's Susie and here's Betsy. Who do I marry? They're both Christians, all right? There, there may be some discernment needed, and, and I would say commit that to prayer, and then you might have to make a decision. You may have to make, we have to make all kinds of life decisions. We should always do it in a, in a spirit of God dependence and prayer, but you don't need to have a dream before you make a decision. Does that make sense? Dreams should never be a, um, an excuse for a lack of responsibility. Dreams always, we see, and, and I, I do want to say this, that today, um, maybe you have heard stories, and I have heard stories from the source, from people who uh, did not have access to the gospel, um, who were, were living in cultures where, where, there were, where there was really no visible church, okay, and where they didn't, um, uh, where they, they, they had very little, maybe they didn't even have a Bible yet, but where God, where they did have some kind of dream of Jesus. And in every case, that dream has pointed them either to um, reading scripture or to a person who could verbally share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, I mean, that's every story I've heard. I'll tell you, I'll tell you or sometimes 
uh, in the case of Fatima's story, Fatima was a, a, a young 19-year-old lady. She, she had married at 17 in Afghanistan uh, to a man from a different tribe. Both were, of course, Muslims from Muslim families. And in God's providence, uh, the Lord brought these people into our lives. And so my wife had, and, and several other ladies on our team had spent months um, uh, befriending, sharing with. They'd actually started a Bible study with Fatima. And, and, and yet there was a whole lot to keep her from the gospel, right? I mean, a whole lot of cultural pressure, um, uh, persecution. And, and yet one night she had a dream in which she saw Jesus. And I don't know how she knew that was Jesus, but she did. And he told her that he was the son of God and that he would make her heart clean if she would follow him. Now, I can tell you this, the devil doesn't send people dreams like that, okay? Uh, exalting Christ. And, and so that was in no way uh, contradictory to Scripture. It pointed her to what she'd already read. She shared that with her husband, uh, which showed a whole lot of guts, okay? And he said, today Jesus has come into our home. We're going to follow him together. And that was how the Lord draw, drew her to himself, okay? But dreams always point to Scripture and to Jesus. They never distract from Scripture and, and Jesus. And so let me encourage you, instead of seeking dreams, seek Christ through his word, and then the Lord can do whatever he wants um, through dreams uh, in people's lives around the world or even in, even in, even in your life. Is that clear as mud? Well, let's talk about disasters for a moment, because we also see that in this text, right? In verse 29 through 36, that this dream that the Lord gave to Pharaoh was the prediction of a massive disaster that was to, to shake their, the entire region of the world, the Egyptian empire. Now, now folks often struggle with natural disasters, when they're thinking through the problem of pain and the problem of evil. Uh, what I mean is, when you think about war, uh, much of the suffering of mankind can be traced directly to the sins of mankind, right? I mean, you think about World War II, for instance. You can trace it back to, to a handful of people. We think in the, 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 the front in, in Europe, we think of Adolf Hitler, an evil man and his evil aspirations. And so you can backtrace all of the, all the suffering and, and death and horror to human sin. But what about natural disasters? That gets a little bit harder for folks, right? They're like, wait a minute, um, acts of God. How do we deal with that? Well, the Bible actually talks about this. It goes back to the very beginning about God making a perfect world with no natural disasters. And it gives us great hope of an eternity with no natural disasters. But it tells us that, that we live in a world that has been cursed by God because of mankind's sin. And yet, sometimes people really struggle with that. And some people even end up with a view of God that would have to be described as deistic. And that is this idea that God is the one who kicked it all off. Uh, he made it all kind of wound it up like a clock, and then he kind of stepped back out of the scene. And th this is really kind of the Victorian uh, idea of God that you see in, the, in 19th century Anglicanism, and it came over here to America as well. 
um, a, lot of, a lot of thinkers who, who saw that there has to be a, an ultimate watchmaker, you know, an ultimate creator, but kind of saw God as distant, and, and therefore God is not really to blame for natural disasters. It's just all part of the cycles of, 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 of creation and how it all kind of works. Uh, but God doesn't want anybody to ever deal with a hurricane or an earthquake or anything like that. Well, that's actually not the biblical view. The Bible says that God is entirely sovereign over disasters. And, and look at that here in this text. As, as, as we see Joseph specifically telling Pharaoh what God is about to do. He says in verse 29, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So according to Joseph, who is responsible for this famine that is going to shake the land? God is. And, and let us not mistake, and mistake famines were brutal in, in, back in the day, where, where, where you, you didn't have the same food supply that you have today, okay? Seven years of famine would be brutal, brutal suffering, suffering that's truly hard to understand for us. Well, the Lord spoke these words to the pagan Persian king Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. He said, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. That, that, that Hebrew word for calamity also means disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, the fact that God is sovereign over disasters uh, can be hard for us to swallow, but it also means that he uses disasters for a greater good, for his glory, and for his plan of redemption even. For First of all, God uses disasters to get people's attention, to be reminded that they are not God. They are not the masters of their fate. If you have ever been through a natural disaster or been and seen the aftermath of a natural disaster, you realize we are small. We are, we are truly dependent. No matter what we build or how technologically uh, strong we get, we, we still can't stop hurricanes. But God uses disasters to get people's attention. And even though it hadn't happened yet, even though it was seven years away, he, he used the, just the prediction of an oncoming disaster to humble the proud Pharaoh who considered himself a god. But disasters often provide redemptive opportunities for ministry to people. You know, the, I would say probably the first time that I really became... What's the right word here? Proud 
to be part of the IMB, the International Mission Board, the mission agency, the SBC. I'd been on the field for about a year when the, actually not even a full year, I don't think, when the, when the massive hurricane, uh, actually it was the tsunami, not the hurricane, nailed Indonesia. And, and the, 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 the worst place that it hit was in Aceh, Indonesia. It, it, you remember, thousands died back in 2004. Um, in Thailand, I mean, a place that my wife and I had actually been, um, there's a place called Krabi where, and Raleigh where there are these amazing sea cliffs and it's a rock climbing destination. Literally some of these people who are rock climbing saw the wave coming and some of them climbed above it <laughs> just in time. But it wiped out. It, it, it killed thousands of people. Okay. Uh, the, the fishing villages around Aceh, Indonesia were truly devastated. Uh, thousands died. And, and, and the survivors were just paralyzed. Okay. Well, the reason I was proud to be part of the IMB is a few months later, uh, maybe about six months later, I went to a conference in Thailand where I, I heard stories of a bunch of normal folks, normal missionaries, okay, um, but who responded to this disaster. They were trained in disaster response, um, and there was a team of, 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 of men and women who just dropped what they were doing, and they got to Aceh before just about anybody else did. Okay, some of them were already in Indonesia, some of them were in Thailand, other places in Southeast Asia, and, and they just dropped what they were doing. There's a guy named Mickey Sampson who's in heaven now. Okay, he had a heart attack in his late 40s. But Mickey was like this um, genius, literally had a PhD in chemistry or something. And, and he, you know, he was doing all these cool development projects in Cambodia. And so he, 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 he had basically turned a, a, a lab for water. He, he did water, a lot of water uh, projects as a way to get into church planting, you know, in a closed place. Well, he managed to kind of put all his lab into something that was handheld, right? So he was there rappelling down into wells, uh, testing water, trying to restore clean water to this village. And one of the biggest problems they had were, were dead bodies that were everywhere. Okay, this is kind of not pleasant to talk about but dead bodies in wells. And so he's hauling these dead bodies out. Um, you know, they're coming apart on him. Um, and the locals were, one of the big things in, in Indonesian Islamic culture is burying the dead quickly. But the people were, were so um, uh, just shattered and shell-shocked, they weren't able to really do it. So these guys went in there, and that was one of the first things they were doing was burying the dead. Um, uh, they stuck around. They stayed for months after a lot of the, you know, the aid agencies that all show up, you know, with CNN in tow, in tow and BBC in tow. After they had left, they stuck around and they turned the, the relief projects into long-term development projects, helped get their fishing industries going. And because of the love they showed, the tangible love they showed, for the first time in Aceh, a church was born. Okay, it opened hearts to hear the gospel because it had been demonstrated to them. And, and, and it had been demonstrated to them in such a powerful, tangible way, these people had come and served them and loved them, that, that they listened to what they had to say. And they were able to, it opened a door for what really mattered, and that was a church to be born in a place where it had never been. Never been missionaries had never been allowed into this area. And so disasters often provide redemptive opportunities for ministry. The, the de death by tsunami, which is awful, is nothing compared to an eternal death in hell. And so this was a tough act of, of, of redemption, an opportunity for redemption that the Lord sent to this region of the world. And so this is one reason I get excited about our, our church's disaster response 
ministry. And, and, and all you guys who have been trained and you ladies who have been trained to, to go and, and minister to people after they get hit by hurricanes or floods, willing to go and mud out homes and cut, cut trees off roofs, um, got a new, new freshly painted disaster response trailer in the, in the backyard here. Um, this is a good ministry uh, because it often opens doors to hearts after people have lost everything, right? To be able to love them and pray with them and give them a Bible and share the hope, share the gospel that I talked about a moment ago, that, that, that there's much greater hope than just having a, a nice house here on planet Earth. Well, we see here that our response to acts of God should not be passiveness. That sometimes is what happens. People who emphasize so much God's sovereignty, it becomes almost an excuse for passivity. And so, acts of God should never be an excuse for passivity, but what Pastor Kent Hughes calls dynamic action. That should be our response. He writes, Joseph's dynamic call to action was based on his knowledge of what God was about to do. So we see that the knowledge of what God is going to do does not produce passive resignation, but aggressive action. The knowledge of God's purposes is not the end of human planning, but the beginning of it. The fact that God has set the future is a mighty summons to action, end quote. I, I can't think of a, of a more clear uh, illustration of that than Revelation 7, 9, this great text that gives us a picture of what God is going to do, and that is He's going to save people from every nation and every tribe. He's going to do it. And that should propel us and motivate us to dynamic action, that being taking the gospel to every people group, even the resistant ones. And that's what we seek to do. We'll see this illustration here in Joseph's life. He, he, he sees what is going to happen, and, and he doesn't say, oh, well, nice knowing y'all. <laughs> Just wait, see what's going to happen to you as you all starve to death and eat each other. No, he, he says in verse 33, he gives a call to dynamic action. He says, now therefore, now that God has revealed to you that in seven years there is going to be a famine for seven years. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Well, how should we respond to disasters? I hope with discernment, I hope, first of all, that you will worship God when you experience a natural disaster. I hope that you'll be moved to help others and point them to God. Disasters remind us that we are small and He is big. In fact, He's big enough to weep with those who weep when they experience the pain of his providential hand in a temporarily cursed creation. Well, let's consider now as we, as we wrap things up, as we land the plane, let's consider Joseph's discernment here throughout this story. 
Joseph's discernment. And that's our last point this morning. Discernment. Pharaoh actually is the one who tells us a little bit later here, we're going to see next week, the key to Joseph's discernment was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God living in Joseph. That's what the pagan Pharaoh noticed. He said in Genesis 41 verse 38, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? You know, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Him, if you've come to the end of yourself and repented of your sins and and believed in the Lord Jesus, right? That same Spirit of the living God lives in you. And that's a beautiful truth. Jesus prophesied in John 14, 15 through 17, he, He told His disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with, with you, and he will be in you. And that's one of the beautiful uh, truths here in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the story, the, whole, the Spirit of God coming on people and then leaving people. But in the, in the New Testament, when you think about what happened at Pentecost, right, you remember the, the, the fire of God, the, the Shekinah glory, the fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness, big old pillar of fire, this idea that God is with us, He's near us, but we can't get too close or we'll get consumed, right? In the New Testament, that fire divided up in all these little tongues, and they came and, 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 and dwelt each individual. That was the picture at Pentecost we get. So if you were in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God living in you, giving you discernment. And so we're told in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This idea of a sealing means that he will not leave us, but certainly we can grieve him. We can quench him by our sin. And so we're told to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit indwells all true believers But we are called as Christians to repent of our sins and to keep looking to God and actually to practice spiritual disciplines so that we might truly daily be filled, be be full of the Holy Spirit instead of our own sin. So let's take a a closer look, though. Uh, We we, we understand that Joseph's discernment came from the Spirit of God, but what can we learn here as, as as we close? What can we learn about the foundational aspects of Joseph's discernment? Well, uh, three things I'd like just to share with you. And the first is that, that Joseph erred when he had to err. Sometimes when you have to discern situations, you have to make a decision. Do I need to be bold here? Do I need to be cautious? Joseph erred on the side of boldness. Boldness. Let's go back to verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. You just see how <laughs> he, he's just... He's looking to Joseph with hope here, right? I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so here's what Joseph said to Pharaoh. It is not in me. Don't put your hope in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. One one pastor put it this way. To Pharaoh's face, Joseph asserted that his God was superior to and sovereign over the gods of Egypt. Joseph's theological knowledge rose high against the face of worldly power. Through Joseph, God was advertising and asserting himself in Egypt. See, Joseph had his moment, and he used his moment 
boldly to make God known, to point Pharaoh and all his court to God's glory. Joseph was bold in his discernment of how to handle this situation. So, so how do you handle opportunities that come your way that may require discernment? Like, say, retirement ceremonies, or promotions, or graduations. When you have a moment, you have a moment. Do you use that boldly, or do you, do you pass? Well, Joseph was boldly. He also used his discerning spirit for the good of others. We see that he was marked by compassion. That's our second, second point here, compassion. You know, Joseph could have had a chip on his shoulder against Egypt. Who would blame him, right? Uh, this, this was the land of his captivity and oppression and wrongful imprisonment. And, and he could have simply had an attitude of, here's the dream, here's what it means, and you're going to get yours. And I'm just going to sit by and wait for God to deliver me by punishing you guys. But instead, Joseph used his discernment on how to help this situation as we've already seen, that was motivated by compassion. You, you look at the very end of what Joseph said in verse 36. He says, that food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are occurring in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph cared about these people and, and offered a solution as soon as he brought the problem. And that brings us just to the last point here, that his discernment, that discerning spirit in him gave him wisdom in speech. And what I mean by that is, it does take wisdom and discernment to know sometimes when to talk and when not to. Proverbs 17, 28 tells us that even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Pro probably uh, for many of us, and I include myself in this one, uh, it's wiser just to keep our mouths quiet sometimes and listen first, right? Um, but Proverbs 25, 11 also says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now, Chris Treadway pointed out something to me this week, and I had seen this as well in this text. It's very interesting um, what we see here. Um, Joseph was not asked to keep talking. He wasn't asked to bring a solution. Jo Joseph was simply asked to interpret the dream. And you get this point that everyone's hanging on every word, and Joseph very clearly um, uh, interprets and explains exactly what the dream means and what will happen. He says, this is fixed by God. It is going to happen. And everyone's just silent. He could have sat back, but he discerned that it was time to keep talking, and he did. He presented a solution. It could have been seen. What, what, hold on, you little whippersnapper. Who do you think you are to give me, Pharaoh, advice what to do? Uh, there was risk involved here, but he kept speaking. He didn't just present the problem. He presented a solution and said, verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And we're going to look at more what happened next week and how that worked out. But what is the key here to Joseph's discernment, to his boldness, and to his compassion, and to his wisdom. Well, Pastor Kent Hughes wrote, from Palestine to the Sinai to Egypt, 
And truly around the world, Joseph's defining virtue was his massive concept of God. Joseph's view of God exceeded that of anyone on planet Earth. And we must lay this to heart. God's choice servants have always been informed and defined by their view of God. Back in, back in the day, back before Princeton Theological Seminary turned wholly liberal, there was a professor named Dr. Robert Wilson. And, and there was a lot going on. There were some professors in the seminary who were, who were, who were uh, teaching that, that the Bible wasn't truly inerrant. Um, not all the miracles actually really happened. There are multiple paths to God. What really matters is, you know, your own illumination, your own path. And others like Dr. Wilson who believe the gospel. Well, one day Dr. Wilson uh, uh, sat and listened to one of his former students who came back and actually gave a chapel message. And at the end of that chapel message, Dr. Wilson explained to him the difference between people who were big godders and little godders. That's the way he put it. And he said, well, some men have a little God, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of Scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. Well, Joseph clearly had a big God. Do you? Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'd like to invite the deacons who are going to serve communion to us to come forward. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your spirit, through our faithful reading of your word, our prayerful meditation on it. Lord, show us your greatness. I pray that everyone in this room who claims to be a Christian would truly be a big godder, that they would have the boldness of Joseph, Lord, that they would have the, the compassion, the, the um, wisdom that he has through the power of your spirit, and, and that the fear of man and that even the fear of disaster would not uh, prevail in their hearts, but they would look to you, your sovereign hand. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. I pray if in, there's anyone in this room that doesn't yet know you, that even today, even now as we take communion, that this would be a time in which your spirit would reveal to them the fact that they've been trying to uh, be their own God, but you are God. Lord, I pray that, that you would open their hearts to receive Christ. Lord, I pray that we would all in truth and reflection uh, during this time confess any sin we may need to confess, Lord, and that you would truly be God in our heart as we commune with Christ. In his name I pray, amen.